Well, good morning. We here at Faith Bible Church are beginning a new series this morning through the book of 2 Samuel in your Old Testament. So I encourage you uh, to take out your copy of the scripture opening to the book of 2 Samuel. If you're not quite sure where that is, you can look it up in the front and find a, a page number and, and make your way there to 2 Samuel. We went through the book of 1 Samuel about four, four and a half years ago. And uh, now today we begin 2 Samuel. Uh, originally, these would have just been one book, the book of Samuel. But uh, uh, now in our current... Uh, Bibles, they are split into two, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The authorship of which uh, is not known for certain, most likely as far as the human author, uh, from chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 25 verse 1, it was the prophet Samuel. But then we come to Samuel's death, so we know that Samuel the prophet didn't record or did not author the rest of 1 Samuel or the book of 2 Samuel. These are historical books. They cover the life of Samuel, Saul, and David. Approximately 150 years of Israel's history. From the birth of Samuel around 1120 B.C., through the, through the provision of King David for his son Solomon to reign after his death in 971 BC. Even though the books of Samuel are historical books, they serve a theological purpose. They teach us about God and about how we should be serving God. And one of the main theological truths, one of the main purposes of the books of Samuel is really one of the purposes of our entire Bible. And that is to show us God's rule. It's a theme that runs all the way through your Bible and my Bible. God's kingdom, His rule. Now, in order to have a kingdom, one must have the right to rule, which God does. He's the creator of us and the universe. One must have a realm to rule, and one must rule. And from the very beginning, we see in our scriptures that God has exercised his rule. His kingdom. Originally, we know from scripture that God created angels to worship Him and to serve Him. That was God's first established rule. And then Lucifer, Satan, led a revolt against God and some of the angels followed Satan. And from that time forward, we find two opposing kingdoms. God's kingdom versus Satan's counterfeit kingdom. 
And we see passages of Scripture like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that make reference to this false kingdom led by the God, lowercase g, of this world, Satan himself. And from the time that the angels fell, God has been about the business of demonstrating his right to rule. So in demonstration of his right to rule, God set up a kingdom on earth in Eden. A theocracy where God would rule directly. And he created man and woman and sent them in a position of authority to represent God. They were his representatives. Thus, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God put man in a position to rule as his representatives of his right to rule his kingdom. Well, we immediately see that counterfeit kingdom, Satan's kingdom, in conflict with God's kingdom. And we know the story, man sins. And the book of Romans tells us that when man sinned, we all sinned. And thus, each and every one of us are born into a kingdom of darkness. We desperately need redemption. Well, God destroyed the earth, except Noah and his family. And Noah became the next administrator of God's rule on earth. In fact, Noah prophesied in chapter 9 of the book of Genesis that a descendant of Shem would experience God's blessing. In Genesis 9.25 it says, uh, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now we know as we keep going in the book of Genesis, when we get to chapter 11, that Abram is a descendant of Shem. That Abram will be the next representative of God on earth. The one who has authority to represent God and his right to rule on the earth. And God reaches down into Abram's life, breaks through and says to Abram, I want you to obey me. I want you to leave your father's house and go to a land where I will show you. And in Genesis 12, he tells Abram, if you will obey me, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. You will have innumerable descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. 
And in you, all the families of the earth will experience blessing. And Abraham obeyed because he believed God. And we come to chapter 15, and God says, Because Abraham believed me, it's reckoned to him as righteousness. And we see from that time that Abram's belief demonstrated that he honored God's right to rule over his life. That, that Abram honored God's kingdom. Why did Abraham believe God? Because he believed God's promises. You see, God is all about establishing his right to rule. And as we come here to the book of 2 Samuel, God is still about establishing his right to rule. 2 Samuel is about God establishing representatives of his kingdom that we will see are the kings of Israel at this period of history, that Saul was God's appointed representative of God's right to rule, that David will be God's representative of God's kingdom rule. And we will find that there's two categories of people Some will not honor God's right to rule in their lives. And what they do is just grab for what they want. I want, therefore I'm going to take it. There's another category of people that honor God's right to rule. And they demonstrate that by waiting on God and for his promises. We're going to read through chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and I want you to watch for these two categories of people. One man is going to position himself for gain. He's going to utilize a political power move. He's going to grab for what he wants. The other person honors God's right to rule in his life, and he waits for God to provide for him. He's not going to take what he wants. He's not going to work an angle. He waits on the Lord. And he demonstrates that by honoring God's rule, God's kingdom representative in this section Saul. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. 
And he said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, here I am. He said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, How is it? You were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Me and David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We're going to see two men. The Amalekite and David. One of them does not honor God's right to rule in his life. One of them does. The one who does not honor God's right to rule in his life is just going to reach out and position himself to grab what he can get. The other one who does honor God's right to rule in his life waits on God for God's provision of God's best for him. Many of us in this room probably have some sort of plan for retirement. Many probably have an IRA, an individual retirement account, either a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, both of which you can do through your local financial institution, a bank, or you can go uh, through uh, some securities firm and set up. But there's regulations on what you can invest in in an IRA. You can have money in cash or a, a mutual fund or bonds, even some individual stocks. But some people don't want restriction. And for that person, you can actually have a self-directed IRA. As long as you can find someone who is willing to 
administrate that self-directed IRA, you could have you can have real estate in your self-directed IRA. You can have precious metals. You can have private company stock. You can even have shares of a racehorse if you want to in your self-directed IRA. It's kind of a I want it my way IRA. The problem is there's a lot of people that have it I want it, my way, attitude toward God. I don't care what God says, I want it my way. And today, that's what we want to see as these, these chapters of the book of Second Samuel open up for us. Two men, one with an I want it my way attitude, the other with an attitude of, I am going to honor God's right to rule in my life attitude. Well, we see the first in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. We see that those who do not honor the kingdom of God, God's right to rule on earth, attempting to secure personal gain by grabbing for it. I see it. I want it. I'm going to position myself to get it. I'm going to work an angle. I'm going to get what I want. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, if you just go back to 1 Samuel chapter 27, you will remember that David was being pursued by his father-in-law, Saul, the king of Israel. Saul wanted David dead. We're going to talk about that a little later. He wanted him dead because David was going to inherit the kingdom and God had removed the kingdom from Saul. Saul's conclusion, I'll kill David. And so David has been fleeing from Saul and he takes refuge amongst the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. And he goes to this Philistine king, Achish, and he says to Achish, I need a town where I can live. And so Achish gives David the town of Ziklag in 1 Samuel 27, verse 6. It's kind of like David's new hometown. So we find here in 2 Samuel 1, verse 1, that David has, in a sense, gone back home. Now, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 30 that David has been fighting the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come into Ziklag while David and his warriors were out of town and took captive David's family and all the families of all of his warriors, plus spoils of war, their cattle, their possessions, and went away with them. So David took his soldiers and ended up being 400 of his valiant warriors ran down the Amalekites, killed them, and took their families and their possessions back 
And they have just gotten back from that pursuit when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And it tells us that David's been back home for a couple of days. And now verse 2 tells us in the third day after he's been home, this stranger comes in the town. Tells us that it's a man from the camp of Saul. And it tells us in verse 2 that his clothes are torn and there's dust on his head. Now, we could picture what it might be like to have a guy walk in the town here in Cedar Rapids with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And we just say, man, you need a bath. But this is something different. These are signs of mourning that this man who's approaching David has purposefully torn his clothes out of a great sense of sorrow and he has put dust and dirt over his body as a a show of his sorrow. So as this one approaches, it's not good. He must be the bearer of bad news. And so it tells us that this man comes and in the end of verse 2, he falls on the ground right in front of David. And David says, where do you come from? And the guy says, I've, I've escaped the battle. You see, what's been happening is David was after the Amalekites getting his families back. King Saul is fighting their arch rival, the Philistines. And so this guy says, I've, I barely escaped from, from the camp of Israel because the Philistines have overrun things and many Israelites have died. And then he goes on to say this in verse 4. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. David says, how do you know that? How do you verify that? And in verses 6 through 10, this Amalekite gives his answer back to David. Now, for David it's most certainly going to sound like a realistic account of what has just happened. But for us as readers, there's a big question mark here. David says to the guy, what happened? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? Well, this Amalekite says in verse 6, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And he uses a very specific Hebrew word on top of another Hebrew word to stress this idea that it's just totally by chance I just happened to come by Mount Gilboa. And this is what I saw. David was there, and his spear was pointing toward him. And the Philistines are about to come and and, uh, finish him off, and he yells out to me. And he, he says, who are you? And I told him, I'm an Amalekite. And then in verse 9, Saul said this to me as the Amalekites were laying this to David. Please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. 
And the Amalekite says, So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he'd fallen. I I knew he was going to die anyway. I just did the merciful thing and I followed Saul's request and I went ahead and killed him. It It was a very honorable thing that I did. Now, for those of us who have the benefit of having these accounts written before us and not there in real time, we have a huge question mark here. Because if you would just go back one page in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 31 and start reading in verse 3, this is what we read. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. Now that sounds very different, doesn't it? Bible teachers have tried to work with this one of two ways. Some Bible teachers think that the Amalekite is speaking truth here and happened to come along Saul between verse 4 and verse 5 when the armor bearer said, no, I can't do it. Then the Amalekite came by, finished Saul off, left, and then the armor bearer came back. I don't think that's what happened. I think the Amalekite is lying. Oh, I just happened to come by Mount Gilboa And this is what I did. You see what's happening here. Whether the Amalekite's speaking truth or not, what is happening here is the Amalekite is working an angle. He is positioning himself. And we see that at its culmination at the end of verse 10. Because And and I took the crown, which was on his head, and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. You see, David, I've brought you the symbols of the kingdom. I've brought you the crown. I've brought you the royal armlet. You see, this Amalekite thinks that he's positioning himself with David, that he's going to get in good with David. In a real way, he has just handed the kingdom to David. He thinks David will be overjoyed. Finally, Saul won't be chasing me over all the country anymore. Finally, I will have what was promised to me. And this Amalekite thinks that he's going to gain position He's going to gain reputation. He may even gain wealth because he is helping the new king of Israel. You see, he is grabbing for what he wants. 
Those of you who grew up in Iowa, like I did, probably have been to a bishop's cafeteria. Oh, the memories of bishops. If you grew up someplace else, you probably went to Furs Cafeteria, which actually bought bishops and ruined it. But most of us have probably been to a cafeteria. My dad used to love to take our family out to eat. And I have such fond memories. You know, uh, we were big eaters in our family. And as a kid, you come up to that line and there's just... So many choices. And just being able to reach out and take what you want was so cool. It was so fun. A couple of times in my life, I've had a very different experience where I've been able to go to a restaurant and have a chef's menu where I haven't had any choices at all the chef prepared a meal for us, and we eat what he brings us. Now, as a kid, when I went through the line at Bishop's, I didn't really contemplate the purpose of the meal. I didn't think, will this item pair well with this item? Will this course go well with this course? By the end of my meal, will I have a satisfied feeling within me? No, I just grab for what looked good. And as a kid, by the time I got to the end of that meal, oftentimes it looked great, but I didn't feel so good afterwards. Actually, what was the best was just accepting what that master chef had planned for me. You know, when we come to verse 10, we see power politics at its best. We see a man positioning himself for his own good. And we're going to see that um, he is a man who has a total disregard for God and God's right to rule. I want us to briefly look, as we think about, how does this apply to me? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4... We have a section on spiritual gifts, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11. It says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now here Paul is saying that a mature man in Christ is not carried astray by craftiness, by the trickery of men, by people who are working angles. And while a mature believer in Jesus certainly should not be carried away 
by people who are working angles, our lives should no way be marked by working angles, by trying to grab what we want for our gain. Here we find this Amalekite playing political politics, trying to position himself for his own gain. But as one who honors Jesus Christ's right to rule in your life and my life, that shouldn't be us. We should not be trying to position ourselves. We should not be trying to work an angle to get what we want. And we see a very positive illustration of that in the life of David, starting in verse 11. You see, the Amalekite thinks that David's going to say, Great! Finally, I have the throne. Finally, I have the royal armlet. But what does David do? When he hears this news, it tells us he tore his clothes in grief. And the rest of his men did as well. And they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. Now let's think about this a minute. Life has been really hard for David. Because his father-in-law has been trying to kill him every day. That's a tough day. You come home from work and your wife says, how'd the day go? Well, uh, not too good. My father-in-law's tried to kill me again today. I mean, that's that's a that's a bad day. I'm guessing my father-in-law had the desire before, but never really actually tried to carry it out. But David's did. He wanted him dead, and he pursued him relentlessly so much so that David has spent the last couple of years hiding amongst the Philistines. It's not been an easy life. We also know from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 26 through 28, that God removed Saul's right to rule. Because, this is really rather humorous, Saul refused to obey God and kill the Amalekites of all people. Remember this young guy that is pulling this angle is an Amalekite. And through the prophet Samuel, God communicates to Saul this in verse... Well, I'll find it here in a second. He communicates to Saul in verse 26. I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul's been told, you are no longer going to be king. Then in the very next chapter, in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the next king of Israel. So you're young David. Samuel calls, comes along. God specifically chooses David to be the next king. You know you're next in line. And yet, Ever since you've heard about God's blessing in your life, your life's been terrible, miserable. You're to be the next king of Israel, 
but you spending all your days running from your father-in-law who wants to kill you. Wouldn't David be rejoicing right now? Wouldn't he say, finally, life's going to be easy? He's not. Why? Because David honors God's kingdom. David honors God's right to rule. And David recognizes that Saul was put into that position of authority over his life by God himself. And it is God himself who will take Saul out of that position. In other words, David is resting in the promises of God. He doesn't have to work an angle to experience God's best for his life. He doesn't have to somehow position himself to experience God's blessing. He's waiting on the Lord. And instead of doing what the Amalekite thought he would do, say, finally, he weeps for God's anointed. And then David does this. He turns to the Amalekite and says words to the Amalekite that had to send instant fear through the Amalekite's heart. How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You see what David is saying there is that God put Saul in a position of 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 authority. God put Saul in a position as his representative of his kingdom on earth. How could you possibly think it was okay to take his life? Because God put him there. He is over us. He is in a position of authority. And then David says to his men, go cut him down. So he struck him down and he died. David grieved. Why? Because he had a high view of God. He trusted that God would bring his best into his life in his timing. I'm going to read a couple more passages out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 so we can see that this principle is just as true for us as it is for David In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking to slaves, people who have it hard. In fact, he's talking to Christian slaves. And uh, he's going to say to these slaves that they need to honor their masters who are over them. Now think about it. Jesus said, hey, if you're weary, you're tired, come to me and I'll give you rest. And that's what these slaves did. But their daily circumstances didn't change immediately. They're still slaves. Look what Paul says. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not disrespect to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And then Paul goes on to explain that those who don't follow that, in verse 4, are conceited. They understand nothing. 
He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about works out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He's saying they work angles. People who don't honor God's rule in their life and demonstrate that by waiting on God to supply supply His best in their life. They Instead, people who don't honor God's right to rule work angles. They position themselves to get in good. They think, I see what should be mine. I mean, God said that he wants me to have rest. I know God wants me to be happy, and this will make me happy, so I'm going to take it. You see, those who acknowledge God's right to rule don't have to take stuff. We don't have to reach out and grab what we think will make us happy. We can simply wait on God's best for us demonstrating that we honor his right to rule in our lives. Father, we thank you for this passage and the reminder that we don't have to work angles as Christians, that we don't have to position ourselves for good things to happen to us, that in contrast to that, we can depend on your promises, depending on you, as our master to bring into our lives your best. Help us to rest in that this week, even when things seem to be going bad or our circumstances are hard. Help us remember that you have established your right to rule in our lives, and we can rest in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.